2: Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Next week, Tales to Terrify hits a pretty significant milestone, our 600th episode, which seems almost unbelievable to me. I've been with the show in one form or another since around episode 180. That's more than 400 episodes ago, and boy have things changed since then we don't have anything quite as extravagant planned for episode 600 as we did for our 500th a couple years ago. We do have a pair of episodes chock-full of some of our most anticipated stories of the year, the Bram Stoker Award-nominated stories from this year's event. It should be a delightfully devilish set of stories that I'm sure you're going to love. For tonight, though... We've got a pair of equally exceptional frights to send your way. So, I'm not going to waste any time. Let's dive right in. Our first story for the evening comes from Frank Orito. Frank Orito is a writer of weird fiction living in the wilds of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His work has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Flame Tree Press, and the year's best hardcore horror among many others. When not writing, Frank spends his time creating elaborate meals for his wife and ever-hungering children. Children of the Night, join me for Frank Orido's Survival is an Act of Selfishness, first published in the anthology In Darkness, Delight, Fear the Future, September 2021.
3: The sheets on my son's freshly made bed are South Sea Blue, dotted with cartoon pirate ships. The green striped pillow in my hands doesn't match the theme. The matching pillowcase, with its plume parrot perched on a treasure chest, is in the trash, stained brown from Randy's nosebleeds. Maybe the child psychologists would say, keep the old pillowcase. A sense of continuity is more important than a few stains. But I didn't ask. I don't like those stains. They're a sign that something is breaking inside my son. Something I can't fix. Shouting bursts out downstairs. A whoop, then laughter. I listen closely, examining tone and timber, the way psychologists say to. The laughter climbs, but there's no brittleness to it. Not yet. I toss the pillow on the bed and head downstairs. In the living room, Randy stands, his linking band still covering his eyes and ears, hands gloved. That was badass, Toby. Pure badass. I think it was a three. A freakin' three. For a moment, I imagine Randy lying motionless on the rug. I run to him, peel the elastic band of circuitry from his face, and look into dead eyes, welling blood. Is imagination the right word? Is there a term for seeing a future that's inevitable? In my head, I repeat the child neuroplasticity rates the psychologists constantly quote. 15 through 18 is the red zone. We've got time. Today, Randy's okay. Talking trash with his friend Toby. High-fiving empty air. I'm pretty sure Toby lives in Missouri. If the group hasn't changed, there's also a girl in Samoa named Nadia and a pair of twin brothers who live in Pennsylvania, like we do, but on the western end of the state. My own twins, Nancy and Matthew, sit on the couch, turning their link-encircled heads in quick, short jerks, fingers flexing in their small gloves. I check my phone. They have another 15 minutes before the patrol ends. If Randy really took out a three, he'll be off duty for a day, maybe two. I pick up empty Respira Juice boxes and Stim Bar wrappers from the coffee table and take them to the kitchen. Randy will take another few minutes to log off with his group. Then he'll want to talk. I pour glasses of milk and slice up a few apples. The kids can't live on junk food and antipsychotics alone. The fruit goes on a tray with some PB&Js I made this morning. I take them out to the dining room. Randy busts in. Red pressure lines from the link band, still visible on his forehead. Dad! Dad! It was a three! Can I call Mom? Can I? Whoa, champ. You eat something first. Randy nods. Sure, yeah. Gotta feed the beast. He picks up half a sandwich and bites off a mouthful. My son is twelve years old. He's been fighting monsters since he turned five. How you feeling, Randy? Like a winner. Randy's voice comes out in thick peanut butter sticky syllables. I'm sure it was a three. I could feel it. Powerful, you know. A gazer, I think. Like the one that burned out those two battle groups in May. The thing was all eyes. I mean, not like people eyes. The shapes were all wrong, but I knew they were eyes. We could feel every part of the thing staring at us when we moved on it. Looking all the way inside us. He flexes his hands as if to mold his inadequate words into something more meaningful. And the eyes pulled at us. The way a vacuum pulls when it gets close to your skin. Randy blinks hard, once, then twice, jerking his head back and forth each time. Randy? I wrap my arms around him, keeping my voice as calm as possible. It's okay, son. You stopped the monster. You're home now. The blinking stops. At least for now. Toby stuck it with a stasis bomb, but we had to push all the way inside the thing to get a lock. It was like swimming through something warm and thick, something that stings. Toby felt it the worst. He screamed the whole time, but he got the stasis bomb locked on. I hold my son, knowing the words will keep coming. The psychologists say, encourage them to talk it out. Verbalizing is good. Movement for it was like breathing, I think. When the stasis locked on, the gazer tore itself apart, trying to keep going. But, but, but what, son? My hands rub Randy's back. The psychologists say, ground them in this world with contact. Hugs heal. But what? After the thing was in pieces, dead. Had to be dead. It was still looking at us. Definitely a gazer. I kiss Randy on the forehead. Your nose is bleeding. Let me get you some tissues. I can't decide which is worse, the nosebleeds or the spastic blinking. You kicked a threes butt. Mom's going to be so proud. My wife Donna is not someone you can just phone up. She works on the problem. Most people can't do that. They don't have the math. Of course, people with the math caused the problem in the first place. They're the ones who figured out we didn't need spaceships or FTL drive to get to the stars. Just enough energy to punch into a universe next door with a slightly different set of physics, then punch back into ours. Their math didn't predict that the universe next door would be so foreign to our own, the only word to describe it is evil, or that the unimaginable things inhabiting the other universe would notice us and want to come through. A man answers the phone. He sounds old, but that could just be fatigue. We're all exhausted. I need to speak to Donna Linderman. He'll say no, despite the fact I wouldn't even have this number if I wasn't authorized. But you follow the protocol, or get hung up on. Dr. Linderman isn't available. I don't say asshole out loud, but I think it. Hard. It's easy to hate the scientists and their math. But they're our only hope of closing the doors we opened. Just like our children, with their still-developing minds are the only soldiers who can pilot the fighting drones operating just inside that other universe. This is her husband, Patrick. Our son, Randy, would like to debrief directly to her. His team just came offline. They terminated a Level 3 entity, called it a Gazer? There's a moment of silence before Donna's voice comes on the line. Hey, Pat. Tell Randy I'm putting him on speakerphone. My research crew would like to hear what happened. Randy takes the phone. He retells his story. This time with more details. No doubt fielding questions from Donna's team. Yeah, the stasis bomb worked great. We didn't know you could kill a gazer that way. We just wanted it to stop moving so we could get a beat on the thing. I watch him, ready to intervene if the blinking starts again. The twins, six-year-old Nancy and Matthew, wander in looking haggard. Kids their age run routine patrols, cleaning out low-risk targets and calling the battle teams when something large gets spotted. Their work isn't as dangerous as Randy's. Not as much chance of total brain shutdown, but it's grinding. They'll join their own battle group in a couple of years. Nancy certainly. Matthew is more sensitive. The boy stores all the horrors away inside himself. I can see them dancing in his eyes. Some kids just burn out early. Looking at Matthew breaks my heart. Has some fruit, guys. Then it's nap time. Randy waves the phone back and forth. Mom says we should go to the movies tonight, if it's all right with you. I take the phone. Hey, are we still on speaker? No, all alone. I step out of the kid's earshot. You really want to go out tonight? The twins are dead on their feet. Me too, says Donna, but I think we shouldn't put things off. Yeah, maybe I should feel a sense of dread at her words. But I spent my dread years ago. All I have left is resignation. Randy's kill was definitely a level 3, second one today. We have reports of a level 5 at the Thins in Denver. The spotter is solid. An 8-year-old veteran. She described the thing as a semi-transparent mountain of teeth. I think we should go see that movie. We see The Incredibles, an old Pixar film from the early 2000s. The movie industry isn't really a thing anymore, but theaters keep the old films in rotation for the kids. Donna sits next to me. The twins flank their big brother, munching popcorn. Halfway through the film, Donna leans into my ear. Come outside with me. No phones, Mom, Matthew whispers around a mouthful of popcorn. Donna pushes the still vibrating phone back into her pocket. We get up and walk into the lobby. What's going on? Donna doesn't speak, only pulls me out into the parking lot. Above us... Jagged streaks of black lightning flash across the full moon. The moon is a thin spot. Luckily, the creatures that crossed over don't seem interested in leaving. But the black lightning they brought with them doesn't exactly help humanity's morale. I'm pregnant. I pull my eyes from the sky. My mouth moves soundlessly while words form in my brain. What? Whose? A man in Montana. Montana. He used to be a high school English teacher. His kids have great mental stability scores. You didn't even talk to me first? You know the rules. I'm years behind. I do know the rules. Youth Conscription Act, Young Hero Production Act, Global Government Consolidation Accords. All passed in a rush during the summer of 2125, after Private Margaret Wilmette traveled successfully to Moon based Luna via multiversal transfer and was dissolved moments later by something resembling a giant acid-filled starfish. No, you work on the problem. You're exempt from the fucking Young Hero Production Act. Donna takes my hand. I need to do this. Having this baby, it's an act of hope, and I can't go on working without hope. Neither can you. But you won't be there. I'll be the one changing her, feeding her, holding her when she cries. Her. Jesus Christ. I'm already imagining a her. I don't care about the guy in Montana with the good mental stability scores. This child would be my little girl. She'll look just like Donna in her baby pics. I'll make her laugh, watch her learn to walk and talk. Then I'll... I'll wake her up one morning and tell her we're in a war only kids can fight. I'll strap a link band around her head, push her tiny pink fingers into reflex gloves, and show her what hell is like. But even knowing all that, I want, need this baby as much as Donna. We could name her Margot after my mom. And for a little while at least, I'll have a child who's happy. Donna's staring at me and I realize I'm crying. I'm glad you're pregnant. Donna seems to think about this. She looks almost disappointed. Do you think maybe all the good people are already dead? Only selfish assholes. Willing to let their children fight a war for them, survived? Before the conversation can go on, Donna's phone vibrates. What's happening? War news isn't broadcast publicly, but Donna isn't part of the public. The Five is breaching in Denver. Missiles are in the air. I look west, as if I can see Denver from Pittsburgh. We should go to the kids. No, says Donna. If a Five gets through, it's an extinction-level event. Let them enjoy their movie. We stand there holding hands, staring at an empty western horizon. Ten minutes later, Donna's phone buzzes. She reads the screen, puts the phone away, and kisses me. It doesn't feel like a kiss goodbye. The missiles are a new design. No fallout on our side. We lose Denver, but the world's still here. Can we call the baby Margot if it's a girl? Donna nods. I lie in bed that night, unable to sleep. Unwilling to take the pills that would make sleep even a remote possibility. A muffled cry comes from down the hall. Donna sits up. I'm at the bedroom door when Randy steps in in front of me. His hair sticking up in tufts. Tears on his cheeks. I had a nightmare, Randy says and leans against my chest. The twins, their steps muffled by footy pajamas, appear behind their brother. Bad dreams all around, huh? Come on in. Donna spreads out the pillows. Randy, Matthew, and Nancy climb into the big bed. Snuggling beneath the duvet, Donna and I get in after. Flanking our children like bookends, I reach across them, joining hands with my wife. In moments, everyone but me is asleep. Tomorrow, maybe the world will end. I don't have the math to solve that problem and my brain is too old and set to fight the monsters. But I'm a good dad, at least what passes for one these days. So I do what any good dad does. For a few hours in this bed, I keep the nightmares away.
2: That was Frank Orido's Survival is an Act of Selfishness, as read by Jim Matusik. Jim Matusik is a voiceover professional based in Indiana, and is thrilled to be narrating for Tales to Terrify. He has worked on animation projects, video games, explainer videos, and everything in between. You can contact Jim through his website at jimmatusik.com
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game
3: without blowing your budget?
2: Our second tale tonight comes from Matthew Liebowitz. Matthew Leibowitz is a designer, technophile, and optimistic futurist, though you might not know it from his fiction. He has stories in recent issues of Uncharted magazine, The Colored Lens, and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. His alien spaceship-slash-blueprint-inspired doodles can be found on Instagram at Matt Hatter. This is his first story with Tales to Terrify. Listen with me, children of the night, to Matthew Leibowitz's Blaze Trails Unlimited, a Tales to Terrify original.
1: I feel a shift in atmosphere before we've even passed through the decontamination screen of the home dome. A cool, floral draft. The tinkle of laughter and music. Voices raised in greeting. A small golden patch of light quivers on the floor by my feet, and I stare at it in amazement. Above me is a skylight recessed into the ceiling and through it, is something I haven't seen in nearly 13 years. Pure, untainted sunshine. I close my eyes. Let the warm glow spread across my skin. What's the fixation, Nate? Serena has returned from collecting our welcome glass of charm. You'd think you'd never seen the sky before. (laughs) She's warning me not to act the hick, not to attract attention, not when she's so near to her goal. She leans closer and adds, Can you believe this crew of quacks and clowns? Not the description I would use. Our fellow guests look magnificent. The men well coiffed with tuxedos and steely hair and confident eyes. The women in flowing gowns and luxurious curls, all of them hugely influential. Even as I'm taking stock, the outer port gasps open, and another power couple hurries in, bringing a gust of wet air and drizzle. It's a producer I recognize from the metro section of my own paper, and Serena stiffens as he passes. She despises these people and everything they represent. But it doesn't take a genius, or much of a journalist, to see another side to it. That, after so many years on the periphery, part of her still wants to get all the way in. The man tears off his mask and breezes by without a glance and Serena settles. Prick. Her eyes narrow at his back. I met Serena three weeks ago at a bar called Prohibition in the Narrative Zone. I hung out there often, ostensibly for my job, watching the semi-famous people drift by, half alert for flirtations or drama that could feed my readers, but mostly nursing my whiskey and wondering what series of bad decisions had landed me there in the first place. It was late, past curfew. The electricity cut, so the place was lit only with candles and oil lamps. When Serena swept in with her entourage in ballooning period costume, all the small flames jumped and guttered, as if excited by her arrival. I knew her by reputation, a bit player in a big field, but frankly I hadn't paid much attention beyond her long, thin resume. But when she gathered her skirts on the stool beside mine, turned toward me and clinked her glass to mine, my interest picked up considerably. Do you think they're part of the resistance? she asked, cutting her eyes to one side. It took me a moment to figure out what she was referring to. There had been rumors about a faction of hackers and dissidents who called themselves the resistance they saw the consolidation of power and technology happening again and were determined to stop it this time, through whatever means necessary. Mostly, they worked in the digital realm, disrupting networks and global communications. But recently, there had been an explosion in a richer district, a kidnapping, threats and demands, promises of more to come. When Serena mentioned the group, It gave me a precarious tingle. I had been splashing around in the kiddie pool of celebrity gossip far too long, waiting for a real story to appear, a story that would make my father proud. Maybe this was it. You never know, Serena continued, her eyes fixed on mine. It could be anyone. Come. She took my hand, led me through the crowd and out the door into the grotesque night air. It wasn't smart to be outside without a mask, but I took a deep breath anyway. For once, I wanted to taste it. Serena directed me to look away from the coast, up past the stacked blocky structures of our lower district, up to the peaks where the home domes glowed like Christmas lights along the ridgeline. Augustine Jakes, she mused, drawing out my father's name. What happened to men like him? I wanted to tell her that I might be a man like him. I often said things like this, as a shortcut to attention, to make it seem that I was working on something consequential, and sometimes I even believed it. But Serena had already made it clear we were beyond such pretense. It could be anyone, she had said, referring to the resistance. I knew now that she meant it could be us. A few days later, my editor dropped a thick envelope on my desk, then stood by as I opened it. "Whose ass you kiss for that?" he asked with customary tact. It was stamped with the Blaze family crest, and inside was an ornate, engraved invitation. "What are you doing way back there, Nate?" called Serena, coming around the swimming pool, carrying two fresh glasses of charm. The first one is already doing its magic. She looks fabulous. Even her missing eye tooth is restored. Her smile straight and white. My heart brims with the loveliness of it all. The guests, the topaz pool, the rustling fruit trees, the scent of eucalyptus and ocean wafting in from the coast. It's almost too beautiful to bear. Just stay close, okay? Serena rummages in her clutch, removing first her inhaler to puff on it, then a small, black plastic card that she turns back and forth, revealing the robot insignia of the resistance on one side and some stamped, soldered circuitry on the other, along with a small black button. She seems to be trying to remember what it's for. Ladies and gentlemen, she says. I implore you. No, I defy you. It's like she's muttering an incantation for summoning a demon. She catches me watching, and her eyes go sharp and devious. Trust me, Nate, you won't want to miss the denouement of this one. Ah, here she is, the singular Serena Belmonte. The card is gone. Serena swings around. Her attitude returned to clear, simple delight. Emerson! She spreads her arms to greet him. Emerson Blaze is smaller than I expected and a lot younger. He should be my father's age, but he doesn't look much older than me, with smooth, cherubic skin and a cheerful, impish grin. He has the Blaze-famous black beard and mustache and matching black eyebrows, but it looks phony on him like a child wearing a disguise. He also comes equipped with a personal AI that hovers beside him in a whispering braid of lucid smoke. When Emerson stops, the AI stops too, settling to observe us. "'We've been looking for you,' says Emerson. "'The results of your screen test returned, and I was extremely impressed.'" "'They did?' Serena hugs herself and shifts from foot to foot, glancing at me. You were? Absolutely, says Emerson. You were... how do we put it? He pauses, and the AI curls closer and whispers in his ear. Incandescent, says Emerson. In fact, we're considering using you as the lead EP in our fall campaign. I was? You are? Serena is increasingly agitated, either truly flustered by the flattery or playing the part very well. I would, of course. That is, well, my agent would need to check the details, but... Yes, yes, of course. Emerson waves the details away. And who's this? He turns to me. Nathaniel Jakes. I extend my hand in the legacy greeting that I understand is still practiced in the dome, although the notion makes me squeamish. I'm a journalist, doing a profile on Serena. The Jakes, is it? Emerson ignores my hand, regarding me with an interest that's creepily perceptive. It occurs to me that his AI might be feeding him information on the back end. I knew your father... You did? Now it's my turn to be surprised. My father was famous in his own time, authoring several texts on the hazards of technology, but he was mostly ignored by oligarchs like Emerson Blaze. Of course. An intriguing fellow with intriguing ideas. Tell me, Jakes, do you follow his lead? How do you mean? Do you want me dead? Your father wanted me dead. Is that why you've come? To kill me? He watches me, his eyes glowing with an obscure energy. Then he laughs and slaps my shoulder. (laughs) I'm joking, Jakes, he says. Relax, pay it no mind. He turns to the railing and tips his face to the sunshine. Exquisite afternoon we're having. Wouldn't you agree? The meal is in a shaded pavilion that opens on the patio and pool. It's possible that Emerson has stalled the dome's artificial sunlight because it hangs in much the same position as when we arrived, as if to prove that titans like Emerson can control time along with everything else. It feels hotter, too, bearing down on the topiary and the citrus trees, the clipped grass around the pool. Even the few wind-up birds that remain hop and peck listlessly at the edges. But beneath the shade of the overhang in our dining area, it's artificially cooled and comfortable and swept by breezes from the sea. The meal is a variety of seared meats prepared from grills out of view presaged by mouth-watering aromas and brought in by a procession of servants and waiters carrying platters that display the original form, racks of enormous ribs, an entire swordfish, a pile of crisp, elongated flanks that might come from a gazelle. It must be another illusion, but given the reach and breadth of Emerson's affluence, it seems possible that we're eating real animals raised in a pocket of fertile wilderness that the rest of us aren't even aware of. So, seated across from me, Emerson selects a shank from an offered platter and transfers it to his plate. He's not looking at me, but I can feel his probing interest, perhaps through the proxy of his AI that drapes around his neck in a series of loose, whispery folds. Tell us about your father, Jakes. His ideas were so perplexing at the time. The man was deranged. This comes from an older gentleman to Emerson's right, across from Serena. He wears an ascot and a clipped goatee, and he rubs his glasses between folds of a silk handkerchief before winding them back around his ears. It was just his sort of preposterous logic that landed us here in the first place. Can you remember, Emerson? The damage caused by that horrible throttling to our economy? Alistair, please. Emerson touches his neighbor's arm to calm him. The boy is here now. Can't you see that? Is that why you've come, Mr. Jakes? To remedy the failure of your father? Before I can respond... There's a rising agitation as Serena stands, sending her chair scraping back on the stone floor. She holds her wine glass in one hand and a knife in the other, and she taps the metal to the rim, sending a clear, shivery signal through the room. The hum of conversation diminishes as one by one the pleasant, expectant faces turn our way. Emerson dabs his mustache and sits back, preparing to enjoy a show. His AI, however, has attention only for me. Hello, calls Serena. What a blessed afternoon. It's fabulous to see such exalted company. My name is Serena Belmonte. You may know me from the Marquis. She pauses for response and there's a puzzled murmur, some shaking of heads. Anyway, She continues. Let's take a moment to recognize our gorgeous host. She extends her glass toward Emerson, who has not only opened his home dome to us today, but has recently announced he'll be casting me, Serena Belmonte, as the lead EP in the fall campaign. Isn't that grand? Go on, Emerson, tell them. Mm Mm-hmm. Emerson considers her in his distant, amused way, and Serena fidgets under her gaze. I don't know, he says. Alistair? Not sure she fits the bill, to be blunt. Alistair has been sawing savagely at his stake, but he puts down his knife and leans back to assess her. Don't really see the fire we hoped for, do we, Em? Can you sing and dance? Me? says Serena. You mean, now? Why not now, darling? la da di da and all that. Alistair begins to hum and swing his napkin. We could use a bit of entertainment, like the old days. Serena blinks and for a moment I think she might give it a try. Then she draws herself to her full height, Tragically, I must decline. There's a rustle of confusion, some gasps from the guests. No, don't worry. She lifts a hand to reassure them, then opens her purse and removes the plastic card that I had seen earlier. She holds it up so the whole table can see the insignia on one side, the black button and blinking light on the other. I've brought something equally enthralling. Oh, goody, says someone down the line. Is it magic? It's anti-magic, says Serena. This device has the power to clear the cobwebs from your eyes. I implore you, no, I defy you to gaze upon the riches you have brought. She pushes the button. There's a soft click from the unit and a louder answering thunk from under the floor and all the lights go out, the dome gone dark. For a moment we sit in bewildered silence. Then my eyes adjust to the new reality. Outside, the pool is stagnant, the water congealed and black. Past the deck, we can now see the curve of the dome, bulbous plastic beaded with rivulets of moisture. Beyond that, for the first time, we see the true shape of the city, shrouded in mist and illuminated by flickering discharge in the roiling clouds. It's spread out like raked coals, glowing in spots, releasing plumes of vapor. In the distance, the superstructures of breached levees are tilted and mired along the coast like the remains of a vanquished army. There's no sound other than the gulping of the pool, the thrumming of rain, and a steady drip, drip, drip of water onto plastic. You see, says Serena, look upon yourselves. Go on, do it. And we do. It's grey and obscured in our pocket beneath the eaves, but not too dark, or perhaps not dark enough. The twin rows of guests in their shoddy attire, their haggard appearance, the patchy hair and missing teeth, skin pitted with scars and open sores. They blink at each other, lost and disoriented. Someone screams, but it's distant and passionless, like a pantomime of real fear. I force myself not to look at the food. There's a long stretched pause, then a smacking of damp flesh against damp flesh. It's Emerson, across from me. He's shrunken to the size of a child, the pale skin of his face stretched in a permanent grimace, small stumps of teeth on display. But he claps vigorously, entertained. Bravo, he calls in a soft, quavering tone. Bravo, my angel. That's what we've been looking for. Do you see it, Alistair? Do you see the talent in this one? The courage and audacity? I do, Emerson. Beside him. Alistair might be the oldest one in the room. He's not as shrunken as Emerson, but he's gaunt and gray, and the entire left side of his head is consumed by a creeping fungus. Beside him, his wife is similarly deformed with a malignant tumor oozing pus. They both sit tall and applaud enthusiastically. Incandescent! calls Emerson. It was incandescent, my angel. I am? says Serena. She's hugging herself again. It was? It was. You are. Emerson gets up and makes his way around the table. As he moves, he swirls one gnarled finger over his head, and in response, All the lights come back on, as if they were waiting for this gesture to do so. Except it's different now. There's a diffuse glow, sconces appearing along the walls in a series of fluttering flames, taper candles on the table. And outside, a velvety, rich darkness has descended. Bright stars speckling the vast, clear night. The breeze is back, cool and threaded with sage. The pool is an inviting chalky blue. Torches appear, tall with golden flame, and beyond this, outside the dome, the entire city of Los Angeles has been resurrected for our enjoyment, alive with light and splendor. Oh, look! Someone points. On the horizon. A magnificent moon is hoisting itself into view, casting wavery reflections back across the water. It's bigger and creamier than any moon has a right to be, not to mention that it's rising in the west, but that's all okay. It's the most beautiful moon I've ever seen. Live music starts up a quartet hurrying with their instruments to a tent festooned with streamers and amber light. Guests look at each other and laugh, relieved to be past the minor hiccup. An elegant couple rises and begins to waltz, graceful in tuxedo and gown. Others follow. I had you all wrong. Emerson has circled the table and arrived by my side. He's returned to his more stately, tuxedo-wearing self, eyes bright and cheerful, his beard filled with luster. You're not a thing like your father, are you? He gives me a jovial slap on the shoulder. ho oh, come on, Jakes. It's no big deal. Empires rise and empires fall. It happens all the time. Now. Let's dance. He turns to Serena. Angel? Serena, meanwhile, has sunk back to her seat. She looks dazed and beautiful. When she looks up, there are tears on her cheeks. Oh, Nate, she says to me. Isn't it grand? She takes Emerson's hand and allows him to help her up, to guide her in a pirouette, then a dip. She comes up laughing and weeping. To our newest entertainment property, announces Alistair from the side, raising his glass. To Serena Belmonte, to Blaze Trails Unlimited. All around us people clap and cheer, raising a toast to a glorious future. The band launches a rousing rendition of God Save America. He thought you were going to kill him, you know. Finally finish what your father couldn't start. The wispy AI has followed me through the halls to the vestibule by the rear exit of the dome, seeping through vents or along the baseboard to join me as I'm pulling on my boots and plastic wraps. Now it sits on the bench across from me and mimics my motions in a way that seems contemptuous and taunting. I've never seen an AI so disassociated from its host before, never mind in such human form. It makes me wonder who's really in charge up there, of the dome. But it's very lifelike. It even giggles when I try to swipe it away, my hand passing through the vaporous layers, coming away damp and tingly with condensation. Why do you think you were even brought here? It asks. It's what everyone wants. Him, most of all. You must know that, Jakes. Emerson, most of all. Wait, come back! You won't leave him like that, will you? Don't leave him like that! This last part, it calls after me as I head out the rear door and descend the ornate wrought iron stairs into the sulfurous mist. Above me, Bare black branches scratch the swirling sky. Jakes! Its voice tears and shreds with the wind. Oh, go on, run away, coward. You'll be back, we know you will. As I head down the driveway, my feet crunch on gravel and ash, and from somewhere near the coast comes the bluish flare of another rocket launching into orbit another rich person blasting off, leaving the planet a little more hostile for those who remain. Above me the dome glows and throbs, livid and translucent and veined with circuitry and light, an orgasm or an eyeball. For a moment I picture Serena inside, graceful in the moonlight, dipping and twirling in the promise of eternal now. Maybe that's the big story, the boundless human capacity for self-deception. Perhaps there is no big story. Empires rise and empires fall, as Emerson said. It's no big deal. It happens all the time.
2: That was Matthew Leibowitz's Blaze Trails Unlimited, as read by James Cheatham. Born and bred in the USA, James has literally been around the world and back again. He is a retired military veteran that has been to war four times. Now, he narrates audiobooks full-time. He started back in 2018 with some divine direction and is absolutely loving it. Thank you, James. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell, for now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Leslie Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our T public store where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself Drew Sebastiani with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution Non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we meet the monster lurking in the trees for more Tales to Terrify.